0: Please turn with me to the Book of Isaiah, chapter 40, as we pick up where we left off almost exactly a year ago. Um, we left off at Isaiah chapter 39 and took a break to go through the Book of Mark, which took us 51 weeks, and here we are at week 52, back in Isaiah, starting at verse or chapter 40, verse 1. Well, before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we see here the first word is the word comfort. And comfort is a thing that we seek so many times from everywhere else except you. And so, Lord, we pray that as we open your word and as we read from it, that you would change us because of it, that we would be renewed in our minds, that we would be conformed to the way that you would have us be, that we would no longer be conformed by this world, that we would be conformed by the renewing of our mind, and that would come from your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So as I read through this this week, it made me think of instances in my life, both on the giving and the receiving end. And it's something that we've all been on both sides of. You know what it's like. You give someone advice, and it's not just advice. It's like a, a real truth about a situation. It's not You're not just saying, hey, I really think you should do this, but you're, you're giving them a hard truth. Something that you see and you know is bad for them. And they just refuse to see it. They just refuse to see it. They go ahead and they do the thing, whatever the thing is. And then they realize that it's wrong. They realize that it was bad. It somehow hurt them or whatever the consequences was. And you knew that it was going to happen. And you have this overwhelming urge to, to tell them, I told you so. You've probably been on the receiving end of that for sure. I know I have. I've been the one that didn't know any better or thought they knew better. And I've definitely been on the giving end of that as well. Instead, what do we do in those situations? Of course, we if it's someone that we love and care for, we bring them in. We we comfort them. You help. We help them to deal with whatever fallout is coming from this thing that they have chosen to do. We love them anyway, even though they made a horrible choice. If you're like me, again, you've been on the receiving end of this because I know my own stupidity. And as a parent, I've, I've seen my kids as, as they've grown, and, and I've, we've done this with our kids many times. And so as we come to Isaiah chapter 40 today, this, is, this text is going to resonate with those experiences that we've had in our life at a very deep level, because we are both the center of and oftentimes the ones that are called upon to forgive. It's been a while since we've been in Isaiah, so we'll get caught up with that in just a moment. In fact, the and again, the last sermon that I preached in Isaiah was the last Sunday before we went into lockdown for two, two months. And so in considering that Isaiah 39 ends with this promise of future exile of future difficulty and 40 picks up with the promise of comfort and restoration I thought it was incredibly providential that God would organize it in that way it's pretty crazy as we pick up the second half of this book we'll see a distinct shift away from judgment though we're still going to have to wade through some of that judgment we're still going to see it but we're going to see this this picture of restoration as the people are being called back to their God And for us, this is a good word because we oftentimes find ourselves in need of that same kind of restoration. Do we not? Whether it's some big sin that we have or some sin that just kind of plagues us along the way. We all benefit from hearing these words of comfort and pardon that we find in our text today. So with that, I want to look at three main ideas. First is that God has a people secondly god forgives his people and then thirdly god demonstrates that forgiveness and so with that let's look together at the text isaiah chapter 40 we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11 please stand with me in the honor of the reading of god's holy word isaiah chapter 40 starting at verse 1 comfort comfort my people says your god The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Amen. This is God's words. You may be seated. So we spent a little over a year in the book of Isaiah, the first for the first half of the book, and just I just want to catch us up. Maybe you weren't with us when we went through the book. This is a big book and it's it can be confusing. There are some difficult parts in it. So basically up to this point, Isaiah has mostly been teaching and preaching about how the people of God should turn back. To God should put their idols away and should worship God instead, because not only are they worshiping other actual gods, but they are worshiping themselves as gods as well, seeing themselves as the masters of their own fate. Yet God had a message for them for the northern kingdom, those northern ten tribes. Well, that message was there were destroyed. They were, they were destroyed by Assyria and they were led into exile and those ten tribes are now known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. And the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah, would almost be destroyed by Assyria as well, but the Lord himself intervened directly on their behalf. And rather than, rather than see that near destruction, As a wake-up call and a chance to turn back to them, to turn back to the Lord, they instead use it as another opportunity to be complacent. And so God, through Isaiah's ministry to Hezekiah, tells Judah, the southern kingdom, that they too will be in exile and taken over by another nation known as Babylon. So look with me real quickly at Isaiah 39, verses 5 through 7. Just kind of catch us up to where we are, where we left off. Because there's a distinct shift between these two parts of the book. Isaiah chapter 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all which is in that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, Shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, "The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. These words were spoken to Hezekiah nearly a hundred years before Babylon would come and take them over. And Hezekiah and Isaiah would all be gone. So understand this, Isaiah's prophecy is one that he won't live to see the fulfillment of, which is true for many, many of his prophecies, as we'll see, as we've already seen. Yet in our text today, his ministry is going to take a distinct shift toward offering comfort to the exiled people of God. His ministry, a hundred years prior to when they would actually need that comfort, is shifting to give those exiled people Comfort. He knows the people of God will need these words, not only in a hundred years when Babylon leads them away to a foreign land, but also today when God's people struggle to make heads or tails of a world that just doesn't make sense. And So as we look at these words words more closely, we're going to see really the whole theme for the rest of the book going forward. Comfort and restoration for a wayward people who should find comfort in their Lord. Rather than anything else, we're going to see that the Lord who they should turn to, who Isaiah is talking about here 700 years before he would come, is our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah points to him back then, and we look to him today, and that brings us to the first point. God has a people. Look with me at verse one again. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Those are really simple words, and we oftentimes take them for granted. When God uses these, this this uh, possessive kind of thing, when He says "my people," we take them for granted. There's a whole lot there. Isaiah was a prophet of God to the people of God. His role as the prophet, and that he did, was to to serve as the very mouthpiece of God to tell the people of God what God was saying. We see that as we go throughout this book. We, we see that here today as he gives these direct words to his people. But here in verse one, Isaiah is instructed to comfort the people of God. He's instructed to give comfort to them because the creator of the universe has a people for himself. And when they read these words, all those years later, they're going to need comfort. Turn with me to Isaiah, or not Isaiah, sorry, Exodus chapter two. Because in this, in this particular passage, in Exodus chapter 2, we see another picture of how the Lord brings comfort and hears the cries of his people. And this is one of the most poignant parts of the Old Testament an understanding for me anyway, of how the Lord hears the cries of his people and acts upon them. Look with me at Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. And if you know what's going on in the book of Exodus, there were, there, the people of Israel were in captivity in Egypt, and, and it kind of goes through this. I'll explain it in a minute. So let's look at these verses. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Remember in chapter 1 of Exodus, what was going on? We have a story of how the people of God were an agent. There was this Pharaoh that would rise up, and he didn't know the works of Joseph. Who Those works were recorded in the last part of Genesis, and these people were enslaved. But yet they still grew anyway. And so Pharaoh decided it would be a good idea. To start killing all of their children. In order to control the population. So the people of God were going through this horrible horrible time. And they cry out to God. If you go back to Genesis 15. We don't need to go there. But I can just kind of tell you what's going on. This is where God establishes. His covenant with Abraham. Who he mentions here in Exodus chapter 2. And a portion of that establishment with Abraham is him telling Abraham there's going to be a day where the people of Israel are going to be in a foreign land in Egypt and they're going to be there for 400 years but I'm going to deliver them out of that because I will be their God and they will be my people and now in Exodus 2 we read that God intends to deliver those people as he hears those cries for help why do we need to read this well in Isaiah 39 We also read that God intends to have Judah go into exile because of their wickedness. But in Isaiah 40, we read that God commands Isaiah to comfort those people. And Isaiah prophesies the coming of the Lord that will offer comfort. And so you may ask, well, why would God have the people of God go through so much difficulty just in order to save them later? Why not just keep them from that difficulty in the first place, right? Wouldn't that be nice if, if God just kind of kept us from all the difficulty? Wouldn't it be nice if, if our lives were easy all the time? Wouldn't that make it better for us? Wouldn't it make it better for Him even? It's funny because we want God to keep us from anything bad or from anything wrong. And we've and in order to do this, we've even changed our theology to make it seem that like God would never bring anything bad upon His people. Yet we read Isaiah 39, and we read exactly that he's planning to do that very thing. We want God to keep us from, that, from bad things. Yet even think about our, our role as parents, those of us who are parents. We understand that it's good for our children to mess up. It's a, Sometimes it's a good thing. It's good for them to go through difficulty because it makes them stronger. It helps them to understand good from evil, right from wrong. It's good for them to see the bad things so that they know what the good things are. So why does God do this to us? Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Thankfully, he has an answer for us. We don't really have to wonder. Hebrews chapter 12. Starting at verse 6. And I love this because as I read Isaiah 39. And I read Gen- and I read Genesis and hear that he's going to send his people into these horrible places. And I wonder why doesn't he just keep us from all of this. And then I read Hebrews chapter 12 and it helps me. Verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves. He chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline. That you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, and it seemed best as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. I'll read that again. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The Lord disciplines the ones that He loves. Because the Lord says of us, my people, when He looks at us, when He looked at them back then, when He looks at us today, He says, my people, that is why He disciplines us. It's why when He sent, it's why He sent ex- Israel into exile in the sixth century BC. It's why He has to walk with us through the valleys. In the 21st century AD. As the writer of Hebrews says. What kind of parent would he be. If he didn't do this. We tend to look down our noses. At parents who don't discipline their children. But when it comes to God's interactions with us. We want to be able to behave as spoiled brats. And we just don't get to do that. Brothers and sisters in Christ. God has a people for himself. And those people ought to act as if they are the children of God rather than the children of the world. They ought to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They ought to love others more than they love themselves. And when they don't do these things, it could be that the Lord intends to make sure that they will in the future because what kind of father would would he be if he did not correct his children? And just like that, I was told countless times as a child, right, as my mother disciplined me, she would tell me, I only do this because I love you. I really wasn't convinced of her love at the time, (laughs) but I am now more than ever. God disciplines those who are his, and he also forgives those who have done wrong against him, which brings us to the next point. God forgives his people. Look with me at verse two. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. Again, Isaiah is given a commandment here to cry out to her, to speak tenderly to her, telling her the Lord is one who forgives. In the coming chapters, we're going to hear more and more about what God means and the means that he uses to forgive his people we're going to meet this one that is known as the suffering servant in Isaiah we see him in Isaiah 52 53 and other places we're going to read that this servant is one in whom the iniquity of us all was laid upon him and remember this suffering that we experience is only because of our own iniquity and now we read that there will come a day in which the Lord will pardon the sins of Israel. The people of God will have their iniquity pardoned. How can he do this? If you read about the time of Israel's exile, and you can read about that in Jeremiah, as you read about that in the book of Daniel and Ezekiel in particular, as those books were written during the time of exile, you read that the Lord intends that the people of Israel should be in exile for. Seventy years, which is a lifetime, right? Literally, it's a lifetime. And you may think, and we may think, seven years is a long time. From our perspective, it absolutely is a long time. But if you look back at Israel's infidelity to God, where does it start? It starts in the garden, and it just keeps on going. And it really never even stops. It goes back hundreds and hundreds of years. It goes all the way back to Abraham himself, as he had a child with Hagar, because he couldn't wait On the promised child that God had had promised to him. And more than that, Isaac, Jacob, keep reading, there's a lot of infidelity to God. Is 70 years enough to pay for so much sin? Of course not. Of course it's not. It's not like our own legal system, right, where a criminal can pay their debts to society, quote unquote, by serving time away from society, It may or may not work here on earth, but it definitely does not satisfy the ultimate justice of God. So Isaiah will transition to talking about this suffering servant as one who will atone for the sins of the people once and for all. Isaiah saw his day and was glad. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all saw his day. They were glad to see it. We talked about that in Sunday school this morning. Yet they would only meet him in glory because he wouldn't come for another 700 years. We know that he's talking about Jesus. The coming of Jesus would signal the forgiveness that the people need in order to to be with God for all eternity. This is important. Because all the words of comfort in the world don't matter if they don't actually have substance to them. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord. What comfort do they have that their iniquity will be pardoned? That is the ultimate comfort. We can tell a person that we love them all that we want, but if we treat them badly, those words are absolutely meaningless. So God not only commands that we receive comfort, but that we are also told of this forgiveness that we are going to have. And he tells that one day he's going to come himself to make that promise real. And that brings us to the last point. God demonstrates that forgiveness. How does how do we know that when he says our iniquity is going to be pardoned, how do we know that it's real? Well, look with me at verse 3 through 5. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He's going to come himself. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. Every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the substance Of the promises of comfort and pardon. God is coming to do this thing himself. Make way, make way the path of the Lord. He is coming to do this himself. Isaiah here is crying, in the wilderness, what does that mean? Well, meaning a place of absolute destitution. In the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord. Make a highway for our God. Remove every single obstacle. Make the hills flat. Bring up the valleys. Why does he do this? Not so that God's travel will be easy as if the Lord needed help on his journey. That's not the case. But when you go to the desert, what do you see? Nothing. And if you saw a highway out there, it would look like, wow, how did that get there? Why is that there? It's so that everyone would see it. Every single person is going to see that. He's not talking about an actual highway, obviously, but he's speaking of the fact that when the Lord is coming, He is not going to be hindered and He is going to be seen by all. These words, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, are familiar to any reader of the New Testament as they are spoken by one, or about one, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as he preached the coming of the Lord, this was said about him. These were the words that were said about him because that's what indeed what he did. He prepared for the ministry of Jesus. And when he saw Jesus, what did he say about the one Jesus? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That her iniquity is pardoned. That one. He's the one that's going to do it. He has come. Prepare the way of the Lord. It's that he is the Lord. He's the one that's coming. Only in Jesus do these promises of comfort and pardon become real. So how could the people in Isaiah's day and for the many, many years that would follow, how could they know that God was going to do this thing that he said? How do we know that God is going to do this thing that he said. I mean, he told us that he's going to come back and one day he's going to bring us and we're going to be with him forever. How do we know? Well, it's almost as if he anticipates our question and that's why he has verses 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, meaning... We don't, we're nothing but a vapor. We don't last very long at all. How could we possibly understand and adhere to these promises? Our life is so short and yet these promises are so far away. Verse eight, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. God's word will not fade, though many hundreds of seasons of flowers would fade and die between Isaiah's time and Jesus' coming. The word of the Lord The promises of his coming did not, would not fail. As we studied Mark, and we got to the end last week, we know the end. He came. He did the work that he came to do. He gave his life for the sins of his people. He rose from the grave that those people might have comfort and pardon for all time, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Hear this today. You are not beyond the hope of comfort and forgiveness in this life. If you think so, if you think, well, you don't understand, you don't know my story. Well, that's fine. Read read some of the stories in here. I encourage you just to go back, go back to Genesis 12 and start with Abram as he was called by God. And then just follow his story because you won't get to the end of chapter 12 before you find a person who does not deserve anything that God would possibly give him. He passed his wife off as his sister so that they would protect him. Have you done anything that bad? You are not beyond the hope of comfort and forgiveness. Go back and read. See how they blasphemed God. See how they sought all these other gods to save them. If you're not convinced about that, just ask me about my life and I'll tell you. See how he took a hardened sinner that hated God and hated people and took that heart of stone and made it into a heart of flesh, one that would worship the Lord. You are not outside of his ability to forgive. That thing you did, that thing that you're thinking of, as soon as I said, you're not outside of that. That thing that you did, those things that you're doing, whatever it is, they're not so big that he cannot forgive you today. He made a highway in the wilderness to come to his people, and he intends to save every single one of them. Rather than be stuck in your guilt and your shame, call out to Jesus and be saved. Call out. Have comfort and forgiveness today. See how faithful he is. Test him. His word does not fade. And for the people here that call themselves the people of God, to those whom he says, my people, how should we react to this amazing word of comfort and pardon? He tells us in verse 9 through 11, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities, behold your God. Tell others. It's simple. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Verse 11 said, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead all those with young. He said, I am the good shepherd. My sheep will hear my voice. They will come to me. Who am I not to speak to them from the rooftops, from the very mountains? Be a voice crying in a wilderness of a lost world. Behold your God. In conclusion, I ask you, brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask you, if you're an unbeliever today, do you need comfort and pardon today? Absolutely. The answer is yes. I'll answer it for you. If you're hearing these words, the answer is yes. Call out to Jesus. Find rest for your soul. Those of you who are his, do you know someone who needs this? Again, I'll answer it for you. Yes, you do. Give them these words. Show them this. Tell them how Jesus can offer them comfort and forgiveness for their souls. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read these words, we are so thankful for them. And we see you in them. Even 700 years before you came, they were spoken about you. Thousands of years ago for us, they were spoken and they're still true today. Lord, help us to find comfort and pardon in you and you alone as your people. And Lord, help us to shout these words from the tops of the mountain that we would say to the people of the world, behold, your God, behold, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen.